0: Fair 515 Albuquerque Center. Roger, climb and maintain 13000. Riding down a trail to Albuquerque, saddlebags all filled with beans and cake. Welcome to the City on the Edge podcast with your hosts, Nora Hickey, Mike Smith, and Ty Bannerman. like Los Angeles to me. When it comes to early Spanish colonial history in New Mexico, you've heard of Francisco Vázquez de Coronado, who led the first major Spanish expedition into the territory in 1540, and of course the brutal Juan de Oñate, Who established New Mexico as a permanent colony of the Spanish crown in 1598. But in that 50-year period between them, New Mexico stood as a tantalizing tierra incognita for the Spaniards, a place of legend and danger, home to a people whose villages inspired amazing stories of cities made of gold an Aztec empire to the north. As the new Spain of the 16th century went through growing pains, as the Spanish Inquisition attempted to purge all heresy from the lands under its sway, as colonists struggled to survive in the often hard-scrabble conditions of the colonial empire, there were those who looked to the north as to another land of opportunity. A chance, perhaps, to escape the hardships of their lives in the New World, or even to gain the kind of gold and glory that the first Spanish explorers had when they seized the treasures of Tenochtitlan. One of these was Gaspar Castaño de Sosa, a forgotten figure whose story is replete with contradictions. A member of an oppressed population that perpetrated terrible deeds. A man desperate to gain legitimacy, so desperate that he defied the Spanish crown in a last-ditch gamble to secure a legacy. A brave man who was no hero. A criminal who may have wound up honored if only his ancestry hadn't been seen as tainted by the religious rulers of his day. So then, who was Gaspar Castaño de Sosa? And why isn't his name listed in the roles of those who came to forge Spanish inroads to the territory of New Mexico? To begin with, he was both emblematic of Spanish rule at the time, but also stood outside of it. He was a renegade who occupied one of the gray areas of Spanish society. He was a new Christian, a converso a descendant of Jews who had converted to Catholicism to avoid the wrath of the Inquisition. Conversos were always suspect, and legally were not allowed to emigrate or colonize, the fear being that the further one got from the Inquisition, the more likely one would be to lapse into Judaic heathenism. But, ironically, because of the harsh nature of the Spanish colonial frontier, that rule was often waived. Gaspar Castaño de Sosa came to northern Mexico to establish a colony with his friend Luis de Carvajal y de la Cueva, another converso. Together they founded numerous villages in the province of Nuevo León, near the present-day border of Texas. Carvajal served as governor of the territory, and Castaño de Sosa as lieutenant governor, making his home base a town called Alamaden, Alamaden. They hoped that mines in the area would make their fortune, but the colonists they brought with them were too busy scratching a living out of the bare earth to serve as miners, and their explorations were slow and hardly fruitful. They did, however, have sixty well-armed soldiers in need of something to do. Mining was outside of their job description, so Carvajal instructed them instead to go outside the territory and raid some of the neighboring Native American villages, capture as many as they could, and bring them back to serve as slaves in the mines. Over several years, these soldiers managed to kidnap hundreds of free, peaceful people from the area of the Rio Grande. But no matter how many slaves they threw at them, the mines continued to underperform. The colonists continued their hard Scrabble lives and Carvajal and Castaño de Sosa despaired of ever attaining the kind of fortune they lusted after. Meanwhile, events in Mexico City were occurring that threatened their livelihoods, and for that matter, the lives of both Carvajal and the Sosa. For about 40 years, New Spain had been trying to put down a rebellion of indigenous peoples called the Chichimeca War and failing. But a new chance to make peace had emerged and among the compromises the Spanish crown offered was to stop kidnapping and enslaving natives, any natives. Messengers were sent out to the frontier towns, ordering the governors there to stop the practice immediately. Governor Carvajal received the message, signed off on it, and promptly began ignoring it. He wanted to get rich, and he simply couldn't see a way to do so without his slaving raids. In fact, he'd even begun a side hustle of selling the indigenous slaves into other provinces. At the same time, rumors were going around that members of Carvajal's family, who he'd brought with him as colonists, were practicing some of the forbidden Judaic traditions in secret. Those rumors were particularly popular among some of Carvajal's enemies, who believed that parts of the territory of Nuevo Leon should belong to them. After a Game of Thrones-style shuffling of political leaders in Mexico City, a new viceroy decided it was time to go after the renegade slavers and possible crypto-Jews in Nuevo León. A delegation of soldiers arrived in Almaden in late 1588 and arrested Carvajal and many members of his family on the charges of both conducting slaving raids and heresy. They were dragged back to Mexico City in chains. Carvajal was imprisoned, and his sister and her children were burned at the stake for secretly practicing Jewish rituals. That left Gaspar Castaño de Sosa in charge of the pathetic, poor province of Nuevo Leon. The Sosa, as mentioned above, was also a descendant of Jewish converts and had certainly been complicit in the slave raids. He undoubtedly worried that he would be arrested next, or in the best case scenario left in charge of a sad, impoverished territory whose silver mines had been consistently disappointing and had required now illegal labor to run. And then he remembered the stories he had heard of a rich land inhabited by well-dressed people, gente vestido, who lived in multi-story villages and at the center of it all, Gran Quivara, A city with golden walls whose wealth rivaled that of the aztec empire follow the rio grande the stories said and a great fortune awaits castaño de sosa began to spread the story among his colonists showing them silver he said had come from the province but in reality was one of the meager finds in the nuevo leon mines and playing on their own fears that as conversos they too might find themselves shackled and dragged down to mexico city and besides what did they have to lose nuevo leon kind of sucked truth be told why not take the river northward and seek out treasure and fame if they were successful they would be remembered forever as heroes of the spanish crown whether they were conversos or not if they failed well It couldn't be much worse than languishing in a Mexico City prison for their turn to be broken on the rack or burned at the stake. Soon he convinced his colonists that their future lay to the north and west, and as they made ready, he sent a messenger south to officially obtain permission from the viceroy to enter the tierra incognita of Cibola and Gran Quivara. But honestly, he had no intention of waiting to receive that permission, the viceroy had already made it clear that he considered the whole colony of Nuevo León to be made up of outlaws, criminals, and murderers quote, who practice neither justice nor piety. Even as the Sosa made ready to set his colony out on their grand venture, a messenger came from the viceroy, Captain Juan Morlete, bearing the viceroy's denial of the Sosa's petition. The Sosa, weighing his options, decided to ignore the message and take his chances. On July 27, 1590, a long, winding wagon train set out from Almaden. 170 women, children, and men, all the colonists, in fact, along with dozens of animals and enough supplies to weigh down their wagon beds, they were all eager to escape their hard life in Nuevo Leon and find the riches to ensure their and their descendants' place in Spanish history. Of course, this presented the indigenous captives with a chance for escape, and on the second night of the journey, three of them, two adult men and a teenaged boy, attempted to do just that, trying to flee with some of the horses on the night of the 28th. Unfortunately, they were caught, and in order to make an example to the other slaves, the Sosa ordered the two adults hanged. As they traveled, the Sosa continued to send the colony's soldiers out to raid Native American villages for slaves and supplies. Some of the villagers they kept as servants for the traveling colonists, but others were brought by contingents to the markets of northern Mexico where they were sold. Even though the Sosa did make an account of his journey, the route is very difficult to pen down, since the names they gave were based on vague descriptors of the land, rather than any names we now use. Where, for instance, might the Pool of Poplars be where they spent several nights early in their journey? We just don't know. They did manage to do some trading with the Indians they didn't attempt to enslave, but as their journey progressed, their reputation preceded them, and many of the Native Americans they met in Texas refused to meet with them at all or even abandoned their villages and camps when they heard they were coming. This made the journey harder for them, of course. Slavers have a hard time when they travel through the territories of those they enslave. After nearly three months of this protracted, slow, and difficult journey, the traveling colony reached the Pecos River in late October. Their guide, an indigenous slave they called Miguel, told them that the fastest way to the land of riches and plenty they sought was via this tributary. As winter came on, the wagon train trudged northwest, following the sometimes difficult path of the Pecos River. As they passed the area today occupied by Carlsbad, Miguel told them that they'd find the great city they sought soon. The Sosa then sent out an advanced guard consisting of several of his soldiers, led by a Captain Maese de Campo Cristobal de Heredia, to make contact with the inhabitants of the city but not to enter it. Two weeks later, on December 23rd, the advanced guard returned, weary and demoralized, several of them wounded. Shamed by their failure, Captain Herodilla told the Sosa their story. After a week of snow and freezing weather, they had indeed found the Indian city, they said, a great pueblo called Secuye, which their clumsy Spanish mouths rendered as Pecos, which gives both the pueblo and the river their present-day name. And they were well-received, welcomed, in fact, with open arms. They were cold and hungry, and in defiance of de Sosa's orders, they entered the pueblo to warm themselves in the hospitable village. The next morning, the residents of the village brought them maize, but the soldiers deemed it too little and sent several of the men to round up more. Apparently, the soldiers entered dwellings without permission, and before they knew it, they were surrounded by an angry crowd. An argument broke out, and soon the inhabitants of the village began yelling and pelting the Spaniards with rocks and arrows. The soldiers managed to escape, but without weapons or supplies. The Sosa saw this as a clear challenge against Spanish authority, and decided then and there that he must humble these rebellious villagers before his might. He rounded up twenty able men, seventeen attendants, and a supply of freshly slaughtered oxmeat, and rode out himself to this recalcitrant pueblo. Pecos was huge, certainly far larger than any of the colonies in Nuevo León. Multi-storied and designed with fortification in mind, it must have immediately put any thought of outright conquering it out of de Sosa's mind. As his memoria states, As they came in sight of the pueblo, he ordered the trumpets blown. Drawing near, he noted that all the people were armed and ready for battle, men as well as women, on the rooftops and down below. When he saw how matters stood, the lieutenant governor ordered the maese de campo to set up camp, an arquebust shot away from the pueblo on the side where it appeared the strongest. This was done. Then he ordered Juan Rodríguez Nieto to position two bronze cannon and to stay with these small pieces with fuse lighted so that they might be ready in case they were necessary for defense against the Indians and their pueblo. The Sosa was afraid that he could not take Pecos by force, so instead he made several attempts to present the people there with gifts. They were all rebuffed. Finally, frustrated, he let loose with cannons and charged the walls with his horses, One lucky shot took out the Pecos war leader and that, combined with the desperate De Sosa's continued overtures of peace, did it. The Pecos finally allowed him in on New Year's Day of 1591. He or his men recorded what they saw in the memoria, which remains the most important description of the now ruined Pueblo of Pecos in its heyday. De Sosa proceeded to the pueblo, accompanied by some soldiers on horseback and afoot, in order to reassure the entire population as best he could and to see what was there. A great many people showed themselves and made signs of real friendship toward the Spaniards, who saw everything there was to see. Most noteworthy were sixteen kivas, all underground, thoroughly whitewashed and very large, constructed for protection against the cold, which in this country is very great. They do not light fires inside, but bring from the outside numerous live coals banked with ashes in so neat a manner that I am at a loss to describe it. The door through which they enter is a tight hatchway large enough for only one person at a time. They go down by means of a ladder set through the hatchway for that purpose. The houses of this pueblo are arranged in the form of house blocks. They have doors leading out all around and they are built back to back. They are four and five stories high. There are no doors opening on the streets, on the floor, just above the ground. They use light ladders, which can be pulled up by hand. Every house has three or four rooms per floor, so that the whole of each from top to bottom has 15 or 16 rooms, very neat and thoroughly whitewashed. For grinding, every house is equipped with three and four grindstones with handstones, each placed in its own little whitewashed bin. Their method of grinding is novel. They pass the flour they are grinding from one stone to the next. They do not make tortilla dough. They do make from this flour their bread in many ways, as well as their atole and tamales. There are five plazas in this pueblo. It had so great a supply of maize that everyone marveled. There were those who believed that there must have been 30,000 bushels since every house had two or three rooms full. It is the best maize seen. There was a good supply of beans. Both maize and beans were of many colors. Apparently there was maize two or three years old. They store abundant herbs, greens, and squash in their houses. They have many things for working their fields. The dress we saw there was for winter. Most, if not all, the men wore cotton blankets and on top of these buffalo hide. Some covered their private parts with small cloths, very elegant and finely worked. The women wore a blanket tied at the shoulder and open on one side, and a sash a span wide around the waist. Over this they put on another blanket, very elegantly worked, and turkey feather cloaks and many other novel things, all of which for barbarians is remarkable. They have a great deal of pottery, red, very colored, and black, Plates, bowls, salt cellars, basins, cups, all very elegant. Some of the pottery is glazed. They have an abundant supply of firewood as well as timber for building their houses, so that, as they explained to us, whenever anyone wanted to build a house, he had the timber right there at hand. There is plenty of land as well as two watering holes at the edge of the Pueblo, which they use for bathing, since they get drinking water from other springs and arquebist shot away. At a quarter's league distance flows the river, the Pecos, along which we had made our way. The Salado, as we called it, although the brackish water is left many leagues back. We spent the entire day looking at the things there in the pueblo, but the Pecos Indians were not ready to fully accede to Spanish authority. That night, while the Spaniards slept, they abandoned the village. The next morning the Spanish went from house to house in vain, looking for their supposed hosts. Instead, all they found was a portion of the maize and beans and the supplies taken from the advanced guard, all of it smashed beyond usage. The Sosa, now called for the rest of his camp to join him at Pecos, took formal possession of the pueblo in the name of King Philip II, and set off south along the Rio Grande, where more cities awaited him, including the ever-elusive Gran Quivara, according to Miguel. They found more pueblos as they went, but there was little in the way of resistance. They erected crosses as they traveled, proclaiming the area Spanish territory and continued on their journey. Eventually, they came to the Pueblo of Kiwa, now known by both that name as well as Santo Domingo. Tired, cold, and disappointed that he had failed to find the fabled treasures of Cibola, just as Coronado had been disappointed before him, the Sosa established himself at Santo Domingo on the banks of the Rio Grande, and tried to decide what to do next. But he never got the chance. In March of 1591, Spanish trumpets blew at the outskirts of Santo Domingo. The Sosa, perhaps resigned to his fate, mounted his horse and rode out to meet what he surely knew would be his doom. There, with 20 soldiers of his own, was Captain Juan Morlete, the very man who had told the Sosa that he was absolutely not to attempt to colonize New Mexico. The Sosa had hoped, like Cortes, that profits and riches of his conquest would persuade the Spanish crown to grant him clemency. But he had found no Aztec empire rich with gold in New Mexico. Instead, all he really had to show for his exploits were thousands of angry Pueblo Indians. He had failed, and resigned to his fate, he surrendered to Morlete, dramatically lowering his own banner against the inevitable. The entire colony was now escorted back down to Mexico City. The Sosa, as its leader, was put on trial and found guilty of unauthorized adventurism and enslaving peaceful Indians. He was sentenced to military servitude on board a ship in the Philippines. He died there, three years later, killed, ironically, during an uprising of galley slaves. So what to make of this peculiar footnote to New Mexico's history? To me, the thing that stands out the most is that the Sosa's actions seem to have been taken out of desperation. He and his boss, Vahal, were oppressed people themselves, descendants of Jews who had been forced to convert under penalty of torture and death. They lived their lives on a knife's edge. Their kind was always subject to suspicion and discrimination. So they came to a new world to try to make their own way and gain legitimacy in the tierra incognita of northern Mexico. That, of course, does not excuse their horrific actions towards the local Native Americans bordering their colony, but it does provide some context. Maybe in the way that hurt people hurt people, oppressed people oppress people. For evidence in favor of that idea, look no further than Carvajal's sister's family, tortured and killed for their religion. Colonial history is replete with examples of might makes right, with legal theorems falling by the wayside when enough wealth is provided to those in charge, and so Gaspar Castaño de Sosa attempted to secure a legacy through similar means. He failed and thus became a minor addendum to the history of Spanish conquistadors, those who succeeded through the infliction of human misery, Oñate, Coronado, both of them have statues erected in their favor. But for what? Being miserable sadists who happen to be sanctioned by the Spanish crown. Castaño de Sosa could easily have been honored in Oñate's place, but he was born an outsider, one who could never really have legitimacy. Don't get me wrong, they were all awful. But to me, the likes of Oñate will always be worse. Because they were both sanctioned and celebrated. Thank you for tuning into another episode of City on the Edge. If you enjoyed our show, tell your friends, like and share our stuff on social media, and check out our YouTube channel by searching for City on the Edge Albuquerque. This episode has been made possible by our supporters on Patreon, AKA, the coolest people on the planet. To join them in their support of our show and get exclusive access to content, t shirts, and swag, go to patreon.com/slash city on the edge and sign up for one of the tiers starting as low as $1 a month. This has been a City on the Edge production.